Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and you're listening to a special edition of Money Talks where we look back over some of our most popular items of the year. If it turns out we've missed some of your favourites or you have a burning question for Money Talks, please do get in touch on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at Let's start with the ride-hailing app Uber, which has been mired in scandal all year. There were accusations of sexual harassment and legal wrangling with Waymo, and criticism for failing to disclose that it had covered up a data hack that affected 57 million customers and drivers. In August, we spoke to Alexandra Switch, our US technology editor, when Dara Khosrowshahi, the former Expedia boss, was named as Uber's new chief executive. He appeared to be starting as he meant to go on, by saying sorry. Alexandra told us what was top of his intray at Silicon Valley's most scandal-prone tech company. There are three things that he has to do. The first is to fix Uber's culture. And I think that that sounds more easily said than done. Culture is built from the top, but it's also built from the foundation of a company. And Uber was growing so quickly that no one put in the work to really describe what Uber stood for, except for rapid growth. Um, So that's the first order of the day, kind of boosting the morale of employees and assuring them that he has values and that he is going to create a strong a moral culture at a firm that's lacked one. The other two issues are legal. Um, so the first is that earlier this year, uh, Uber was sued by Google's self-driving car unit, Waymo, and uh, over the theft of intellectual property, um, Uber had bought a startup that was founded by a former Waymo employee, and they alleged that that employee stole trade secrets. Every day that this goes on in court, Uber comes out looking worse. So I would suspect that they will want to settle this rather than seeing it go to trial. And there's an overhang of uncertainty about the self-driving car technology they're able to use um, as a result of this legal dispute. So I think they'd be wise to settle it. But that's something that the new boss will have to decide. And then the third is probably as immediate as the culture fix, which is uh, there's an internal legal dispute where one of Uber's largest investors, Benchmark Capital, which is a very prominent venture capital firm in Silicon Valley and used to be one of Uber's biggest boosters, has sued Travis Kalanick, the founder, saying that he defrauded them in not disclosing material information about Uber's setbacks when he had asked to add three board seats. And Kalanick, you know, is, of course, pushing back. I think that the new boss is going to have to come forward and ask both of them to kind of step down because having this internal fighting is a huge distraction both for the board but the employees. I would add that the news of Khosrowshahi's appointment 
was actually a little bit mixed for one reason, which is that it leaked. Uber had not deliberately announced his appointment. In fact, when the news came out, they were still negotiating his pay package and there was uncertainty about whether he was definitely going to accept. So that leak is believed to have come from the board and that annoyed Uber's employees because it showed the continued dysfunction at the company. Benchmark Capital and Travis Kalanick have since resolved their disagreements. Uber itself is struggling with widening losses as it tries to sell a chunk of shares to a consortium of investors led by SoftBank, the Japanese company. And its courtroom battles rumble on. In September, Mr Koswashahi was apologising again, this time to Londoners, after Uber was threatened with the loss of its licence to operate in the city. Charles Reed explains. The regulator came up with four reasons for this. The, the first few are to do with uh, safety checks. The Metropolitan Police Authority in London said that Uber hasn't been reporting serious crimes to it as it should have. The second and third reasons were to do with security checks. It didn't like the way that Uber had been conducting uh, criminal records checks, and it didn't like the way that Uber had been processing medical checks. And then fourthly, it didn't like the reports that Uber was using Grable software, which essentially is a software system which prevents regulators from seeing exactly what Uber is doing on the ground by displaying a fake map on its app when regulators try to use it or follow what it's trying to do. But this is quite a big deal for Uber, right? London is a, a big, important market for it. So this is quite a headache for the new chief executive on top of all the other ones he inherited, which is why he was brought in. It's not simply a big problem. It's probably his number one biggest problem at the moment. This is partly because London is a big, big market for, for Uber. Britain has the third largest taxi trade in the world. London is a flagship market for Uber, which... The founder of Uber, Travis Kalanick, uh, prioritised early on in the app's development. The problem is also that other transit authorities, other regulators, looked to Transport for London as a model for how they should behave. Um, it goes. It has consultants and uh, that it rents out who goes around the world lecturing transit authorities about why they should never build a circle line or how to operate traffic lights in the most efficient manner. So Uber's problem is not that it's facing just regulators in London. The risk is that it embodies other regulators around the world to start saying that Uber has to follow the rules. Uber's appealed against the decision by Transport for London to remove its operating licence and Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, has said the appeal process could go on for a number of years. So I'm sure we'll be returning to Uber next year. Now, moving on to economics. In September, we looked at a new approach to teaching the subject. It's part of a project called Core Econ and is freely available online. We asked Samir Keynes, our economics correspondent, how it marks a departure from the old ways. Just thinking back to my university days, there were these very expensive textbooks that essentially kind of gave you lots of models. You were taught essentially how to plug through these models. And one of the critiques is that they were tested on their ability to regurgitate those in exams. And what this new curriculum tries to do is it tries to get students to ask the right questions. It tries to get them to think critically about when certain models apply. Um, it doesn't just give you the formula. So in a sense, is it undermining the whole idea of economics as, as offering a, a fundamental truth. It's always something that is going to be a matter of opinion. 
So one of the huge debates that came out of this was over what economics should be. And, and so some of the critics said what you should do is, is teach these different schools of thought. So they said you need to teach Marxist economics alongside uh, neoclassical economics and feminist economics and all these different strands. And then other people said, no, that's not, that's not the problem. Good economics is open to different ways of thinking. And when those different ways of thinking are the best to solve a particular problem, then you should be open to those and, and be able to incorporate them. So ultimately, it did boil down to this very big question of what is economics? And I think the initiative that's really got furthest along is the one that does try to make the mainstream more accessible and more open to other ways of thinking. And it's presumably even further away before people educated in this new approach to economics start becoming policymakers and enjoying positions of influence. I think you've hit the nail on the head of why this is such an important issue. The people studying these undergraduate economics courses are going to go on to occupy positions of power. We're not going to be producing stellar undergraduates as a result of this one course. It's much more of an evolutionary process. What about the next Economist Economics correspondent? Has it taught you anything you didn't know? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy in my current position as the economics correspondent. I'll fend off competition. It did make me much more hopeful about future economics undergraduates and, and the education that they might be getting and reminded me the thing that I really feel like I've learned most since starting The Economist, that good economics is about asking the right questions, not necessarily giving the definitive answer of how everything definitely works. One thing we're very fond of at Money Talks is food. And we've discussed the business of pretty much everything you can eat, including cheese, herrings and quinoa. And in October, we talked to Adam Roberts, our business correspondent in Paris, about the shortage of butter in France. The French are getting quite excited about it. If you go onto Twitter, you can see Burgate as a a trending theme. Uh, In the supermarkets, people like to take photos of the empty shelves. And in the bakeries, there's talk of a catastrophe. My local baker the other day told me that, Monsieur, it's a terrible catastrophe. The butter prices are soaring. We've never seen anything like it. So it would be an exaggeration to say there's a panic in France about the lack of butter, but it's something that gets very close to the heart of French culture, French cuisine, the love of croissant, the love of all sorts of delicacies at Christmas. Butter is an absolutely central ingredient to much of French life. But it it seems like only a couple of years ago we were all worried about an EU butter mountain. What went wrong? Well, in many ways, it's a story of what went right, that the enormous surplus of milk and butter that you, you mentioned, that Europe had an oversupply of these things, was gradually tackled. And the butter mountain has melted, the milk lake has been drained, and a quota system for preserving and protecting farmers has gradually been dismantled. And now it's something more like uh, the market working. And so when there's overproduction, prices fall. And when there's underproduction or too much demand, as is the case right now, then prices rise. And in fact, if you look all around the world, the price of butter has gone up. The, the UN, the Food and Agricultural Organization, says that butter prices have gone up by uh, 60% or so in the past year, I think. Uh, and around most of the world, what happens is that people just pay more for their butter. But France is a little different because France has a more regulated economy. The response is not to clear the market by putting the price up, but instead by uh, resorting to other means. And as a more regulated market, that sometimes means shortages. So the supermarkets have their empty shelves. 
we've had a few visitors to Money Talks, including in October Nobel Prize-winning Jean Tirole, who talked to us about competition in the digital economy. And the financial journalist and author Michael Lewis popped in to talk to Philip about the tale of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who created behavioural economics. There was something magical that happened when the two of them were together. And the way Kahneman describes a collaboration is a lot like an improv comedy where the whole foundation of it was uncritical acceptance of the other. As he said to me once, when one of us said something, the other didn't ask if it was true. They asked, what might it be true of? Mm -hmm. So they were always building on each other's thoughts. When they were working on prospect theory, which is for which they end up winning the Nobel Prize, one of the insights they have is that if you give people a gamble, when they're in the casino and they've won a bit and they've got money in their pocket, they are much more risk-averse facing future gambles than if they're in their casino and they've lost some and they're trying to kind of get back to even. Mm. That people operating in the domain of losses who are thinking of themselves in the domain of losses are risk-loving and people in the domain of gains are risk-averse. But the biggest name by far joined us in September. J Balvin, the Colombian reggaeton star. His song, Mi Gente, became the number one song in the world on Spotify in August. It's been streamed billions of times and is an example of how Latin music is helping the music industry arrest years of decline. I asked Jay Balvin how much of a role streaming has played in his success. Well, you know, it has a lot in the way that, you know, when people like something, they just share it. And, you know, as I said in my song, Mi Gente, and I saw Mi Gente with Willie William, I said the world is bigger, but I got it in my hand. It's because, you know, you got the access to everything through your cell phone. And that's when the streamings really, really, really count because anybody can have my song and share it with everybody. And I think it's been like my right hand right now. Are you making a lot of money out of it? Because one of the complications, <laughs> the, the complaints that Spotify has, has received, isn't it, is that it's not generous enough in how much money the artists actually get. Well, you know, I'm, I'm the type of artist that don't like to talk about money. But, you know, I think, you know, through the process, you know, labels, Spotify, you know, we got to start working for us because at the end of the day, it's the music that we're doing that make those platforms work. Sorry to ask an artist about money, but we are the economists. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I know. I hope it's going to be, we're going to have a next interview telling about the remix. Well, well, well I, I, hope, I hope the Economist Money Talks podcast will be the place where the remix gets its first airing. <laughs> believe me, believe me, believe me that I'm telling you, I think you're the first people that I said about the remix. And uh, trust me, you got to check those numbers. Well, that remix turned out to be with Beyonce. So no doubt she'll be joining us on Money Talks next year. But for now, that's all for this special episode. Wishing you a happy new year from all at Money Talks. I'm Simon Long. Thanks for joining us. In London, this is The Economist.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.